We've settled for lesser glories. But the Bible, not our feelings, defines true worship. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we approach the scriptures now in desperate need for your Holy Spirit to be not only our comforter and our guide, but our teacher. So we submit to you, we submit to your word, and we know that your spirit will bring application, will bring conviction, perhaps this morning will grant salvation to some who don't believe yet. So Lord, would you work in a supernatural way, in a transformative way, as we study this text, would you be exalted in this place and in this sermon and in our lives? Lord, we ask it, we trust it, that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So Lord, today, this morning, may we seek you and may we find you as we look at your word. We ask that you'd be glorified in this time, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Worship is hardwired within each and every human who's been created in the Imago Dei, which would be every single human. We were created to reflect back to God, the glory of God, and in our lives to give him worth and to give him weight and to give him veneration. The problem is we were born in Adam. All of us were born in Adam, and thus we are corrupted by the flesh. In other words, we are dead in our trespasses and we're dead in our sin. And our vain attempts, therefore, to worship will always come up short, and by default, all of our attempts at worship will be idolatrous. All of our attempts at piety in this world, by definition, piety is blasphemy because we cannot and we will not worship God rightly. In fact, around the world today, there are, and throughout history, there are many people who practice some very bizarre and some very sacrilegious activities as pagan religious worshipers. For example, I'm not going to show you any pictures, but in South India, there's devotees to a specific god, and they're actually hung by metal hooks, and then they're led in a procession around the city to venerate Lord Vishnu, one of the principal deities of Hinduism. To commemorate within certain uh, groups in Islam, to commemorate the day of Ashura, Shiite Muslims will strike themselves on the back with chains, they'll strike themselves with, with sharp knives in order to mourn the death of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson. In the Amazon rainforest of Brazil, there are many natives 
in the Yanumami tribe who will eat the ashes of the deceased with bananas in order to perpetuate the dead person's life among the tribe forever. So yes, there is one thing that bananas make a little better. And even in North America, many natives last for, or fast for four days. They'll fast and pray and then enter what they consider to be a holy place where they pierce the chest of the worshiper with a skewer and then they connect the rope to a, a tree, a pole they call the tree of life. And they hope by doing this, they'll bring blessing to the worshiper's family and blessing to their community. But see, what we're going to learn today in this text is how God defines acceptable and spiritual worship. So it doesn't matter, and I know in our minds we just described a lot of people that worship in a false way, but I want us to also think about that in the church. It doesn't matter how sincere the worshiper is, it matters who the object of worship is. And if the object of our worship is not the one true God, then we are by definition idolaters. The one true God has the right to define what is acceptable worship, which is pleasing to him. So as we continue our study in the epistle of Romans, we're taking a big, big turn today. We have been in the previous 11 chapters doing a foundational analysis through the glorious gospel of grace. And if you've missed it, you've missed a lot. And we're not going to recap it. That was what last week's sermon really was about. So we encourage you to go back and listen to that. But we ended last week in Romans chapter 11 with a strong definition of God's holiness and God's glory. And as we open chapter 12, we are going to begin to see today, just begin to see the practical outworking of the grace of God in concentric circles. And so I want to show you a graphic on the screen to communicate this. We're going to see the grace of God and how we are shaped by God's grace, first of all, in our own lives, in the concentric circle of our own life. And then as it works out, we're going to see starting next week, how God's grace shapes us in our covenant community, the covenant community of the church. And then in chapter 13, we're going to see how God's grace helps us to work in and live among citizens of a corrupt fallen world. So we're going to kind of work into the community. And then in chapter 14, we move back into the concentric circle of the church. And within the church, we see God's grace has real implications with how we navigate when we come out of the church gathering into the world and then as we come back in. And so what we'll see in chapter 14 is how believers' perspectives and and challenges of conscience uh, allow us to walk with Christ together. And so we'll see some things need to be received, some things need to be rejected, and some things can be redeemed for God's glory. And then in chapter 15, we get to what Paul is really going for in Romans, which is how to extend God's glory to the Gentiles, to all peoples. And then in chapter 16, we'll see all of these various relationships and how we can work together with people outside of our local church, other believers, to extend God's grace and glory to all people. So that's kind of where we're going for the rest of Romans. And today we begin with that first and nearest circle, our own walk with Christ, and how we can bring glory to God through our lives. Can you believe that we are already in chapter 12 of the book of Romans? It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? We began the study the first week of February, February 7th, and here we are, November 7th, and it seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Well, it did for me. Uh, 9, 10, and 11 were some powerful 
passages. And for our time this morning, we are going to see how God's grace and his, his glory transform our lives. And Paul's going to show us three important things. Two pivotal verses, three important things. If you're taking note, we're going to see, number one, our posture in worship, verse one. And I almost made that a standalone sermon because there's so much in verse one. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to do verse two as well. We're going to see, secondly, our position in the world in the first half of verse two, and then our perspective on God's will in the second half. So a lot to cover today and not a lot of time. So look at verse one and our posture in worship. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore. Now, chapter distinctions in the Bible can often interrupt a train of thought. So don't be thrown off by the new chapter. As we turn to chapter 12, we connect this entire train of thought. And we learn a few ideas when we study the entire passage, backing up to verse 33 of chapter 11. If you glance back or swipe back, whatever you have, and you look at verse 33 through 35, you learn that God is supremely greater than his creation, and God is in need of nothing. In fact, when we look at the first half of verse 36, we learn God is the sum of all worth, beauty, and importance for all time. And thus, as we go to the second half of verse 36, or as we look at all of verse 36, we say, oh, all things originate from God. All things are supplied by him. All things belong to him. And so he belongs to him, belongs all the glory. And thus, as we turn to chapter 12, verse 1, simply because of God's majesty and more particularly because of God's mercies in our justification, sanctification, glorification, and our election, Paul is going to say that our reasonable response is therefore to give God our very selves. We manifest his supremacy. We manifest his holiness. We manifest his worth and his mercy by making it known through lives that are submitted to God. And that includes even our bodies. And this is what brings him glory. So as we begin, I want to get a kind of build a working definition of worship. So if you're taking note, or if you want to snap a photo of this definition, worship is, it's much more than this, but let's distill it down. Worship is giving weight and worth to something, that's glory, and then making sacrifices in order to bring it more glory and worth in our lives. So Paul says, in view of these mercies in chapters 9, 10, and 11, I appeal to you. Other translations say, I beseech you. Now, it's important to note what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I appeal to you, brothers, to receive God's mercy, then you need to offer your bodies. Because if you offer your bodies, then you'll get God's mercy. No, he says, in light of God's mercy, the only right response is for us to respond with giving our very lives. Harrison says this, whereas the heathen are prone to sacrifice in order to obtain mercy, biblical faith teaches that the divine mercy provides the basis of sacrifice as the fitting response. So I want to start with that distinction. Do you guys follow me? There's a big distinction between I need to come to God to get mercy, and so I'm going to do these spiritual acts to receive mercy, versus he's already given me mercy, therefore my response is to do these things. And we would say self-righteous religion is the first, and Christianity is the latter. So Paul says we present our bodies... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. And then 
He says, as a living sacrifice. Now, he's used this word present, if you're taking notes, or offer multiple times in the book of Romans. Back in chapter 6, we just read it in our time of singing in verse 13, but he also said it in chapter 6, verse 19, about presenting ourselves, presenting our actual bodies. So you and I, we're not disembodied spirits. So when Paul says, offer your bodies, he's saying, offer all of you. Offer yourself as an offering. And Paul describes this sacrifice in three ways. The first way, he says, is that we're to offer our bodies as a, number one, living sacrifice. It's living. Now, it may not be obvious, but Paul is not thinking about human sacrifice here, where someone is put to death bodily to please their false idolatrous gods. The false gods of antiquity, Molech and Baal, they both required the slaughter of your firstborn children, and more particularly, the sons. And, in the, and I'm thankful that didn't happen in my day because I'm the firstborn son in my family. Well, in the Old Testament, God required that an animal sacrifice was not dead when it came to be offered, but it had to be put to death uh, at the time of offering. And so when Paul describes our bodies being offered as a living sacrifice, he's not describing you coming to church and then being put to death. So if you're new to church this morning, it's your first time in a church, don't worry. That's not what he's describing. But we could say spiritually, we do die to self. Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I died. And as we come to the Lord, we offer even our bodily members to God. The sacrifice of a life is consistent. It's constant because we're not put to death physically, but we remain alive. One of my mentors used to say, the reason it is a living sacrifice, and the reason that's so significant is because at any time, you can willingly crawl down from the altar. And yet we have to consistently, continually, obediently lay down our lives, even surrendering the members of our bodies to the Lord. So number one, it's a living sacrifice, but notice secondly, it's holy. He says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this we learned last week, holy means dedicated, it means set apart. In other words, this sacrifice, this body is to be used for God's purposes and not for our own. Now, lest we forget, we need to be reminded this morning that all of us, whether Christian or not, are bringing a bodily offering anyway, whether it's to God or to sin. Remember the beginning of Romans Paul explains that unbelievers exchanged the truth of God. Do you remember for what? They exchanged God's truth for what? For a lie. And their idolatrous sacrifices included the offering of their bodies, but they were giving their bodies up to impurity and to dishonor. Look at these words from Romans 1. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's that exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that continues today. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Note it here, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, and we all said, amen. So these unbelievers exchanged God's glory, God's worth for the glory of this world. They cashed in the truth for a lie, 
and then they, remember our definition of worship? Let's put it back on the screen, Chris. They gave weight and worth to something. They gave glory to, in this case, creation, to created things, and then they made sacrifices to bring it more glory, to bring creation more glory and worth. In this case, their offering was their very bodies. And that's ultimately what we all are giving ourselves to. We're going to give our bodies in worship to something, to bring something more glory. The unbelieving woman who gives glory to her relationship will gladly offer her body in immorality, even if it means betraying her conscience, because she's a worshiper. The married man who gives glory to pornography is worshiping what he's watching, even as he surrenders and gives his members over to debauchery. That drug addict is giving glory to the high, and they're worshiping every time he or she injects. And eventually, all of these worshipers will become like the idol they're bowing down to. I'd love for you to jot a psalm down and read it later. Psalm 115. Psalm 115 explains to us that idols, they do have eyes, but those eyes can't see. They have ears, but their ears don't work. And eventually, Psalm 115 says, the idol worshiper will become like the object of his or her worship. Like idols, the worshipers themselves will become deaf, dumb, and mute. And so the glory that their false God promised them, that they were making sacrifices to, lies to them and eventually leads them to a place where they are just as ineffective as their idol. Their idols lie like a cheap late-night infomercial about the ab flex, which is going to revolutionize your stomach for six easy payments of 1999. Every idol lies. However, the Christian, we are not offering our body to this world or to some idol, to some created thing. No, we're offering our bodies to God. And so Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. You're offering something that is holy. It's set apart. It is devoted. It's dedicated to God. It's a holy offering. Well, thirdly, notice that Paul says that our spiritual worship As we offer our bodies, it is acceptable to God. Now, when a lamb was offered to God, that lamb could not be blemished. It couldn't be tainted. It couldn't be deformed in any way. And if it was, it was unacceptable. The ancient Greeks would read Paul's words here, and they would consider the body something unspiritual. And so God would not be interested in the body. But Paul says, no. No, we're not to bring a deformed, blemished life before the Lord. We're to bring our very selves. And Paul describes a worshiper who's giving themselves completely to the Lord, including the members of their very bodies. And Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. Some translations for that phrase have reasonable service. Uh, The study for the word worship is a fascinating one. The Greek word is latreia. And originally, this word was used specifically here in verse 1, it was used of laborers, and these laborers would give strength to their employer in return for full-time pay. That sounds like a lot of us. We give our, our bodies to, to the worker or to the, to the employer, and then we receive something back. But then the word morphed, meaning to serve, or something that you would give your very life to. You would dedicate your entire life to. And in Scripture, when it says your uh, spiritual worship, it never means to serve others. It's always used in context of worshiping God, serving God. So we put this together and we learn that true, reasonable worship, spiritual worship is living a life that's set apart and is dedicated to pleasing God. And that includes offering our very bodies. Mike Wilkerson in his book, Redemption, 
says this. He says, you can't turn off worship. It's your basic human wiring. To not worship is to not live. It's like a garden hose stuck on full blast. You can aim it at the grass, the car, or the shrubs, but you cannot stop its flow. Or you might imagine yourself as a sort of human billboard, always advertising what you find to be important, valuable, or worthy. What you pay attention to, how you spend your time, the way you work, how you relate to others in your life, all these things broadcast your heart's worship, making visible and advertising what is most important to you. Anyone convicted at this point? So Paul's appeal is, is live our lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength, including hands, feet, eyes, ears, mouth, and mind. Live to the glory of God. We can't reduce our definition of worship to simply the three or four songs that we sing at the front end of the corporate gathering. That's a time of singing, and to be sure, we're worshiping. But that's not the only definition. It's much broader than that. It encompasses our, our very lives. And so this is our life's posture, being surrendered to God. Does that describe us this morning as Christians? Surrender to God. Well, then, if that's our posture in worship, then what is our position in this world? Our second point, Paul goes on to say, do not. So there is a do and a do not. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind. If you are a 90s youth grouper, you remember everybody had the shirts, not conformed, but transformed. Those words go together well in the English. Everyone had the t-shirt. Now, what I want us to do, because it's such a familiar verse, is I want to break these words down for a minute. So if you're taking note, I hope you are, grab your pen, highlighter, circle or highlight two words out of here. Obviously, the word conformed and the word transform. I want to put the Greek word for conformed on the screen. So the word for conformed is, yeah, not even going to do it. Not even going for it. We're going to go with the root word, which is schema. And schema, the root word, means the outward form. In the Greek, this would best be translated to be fashioned according to. One scholar translated verse 2 this way. Don't try to match your life to all the fashions of this world. Don't be like a chameleon, which takes its color from its surroundings. So there's a fashion, there's, a, there's an outward form. Uh, I don't quote the J.B. Phillips paraphrase ever, uh, but I did like the way it puts verse 2. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And that's kind of a good picture I want us to have in our minds when we think about conforming to this world. We are coming up on the Christmas holiday and there's an argument going on social media that we're already in Christmas season. I don't know where you guys land with that, but we're only 48 days away. And I don't believe it's ever too early to play Christmas music or to put the decorations up. So there's a few of you amening that. Good to know who's on that team. And when I was growing up, getting ready for Christmas, my mom loved to bake. So we would bake, Chris well, she would bake Christmas cookies and we helped. <laughs> And so one of the things we would do is she would break out these cookie cutters that she broke out once a year, and we'd dust them off, put them in the dishwasher. Actually, I don't know if we had a dishwasher. We would clean them by hand, and then we would, as kids, we would have the important part of being artists and pressing those cookie cutters into the cookie shapes. And we had, of course, the tree outline. We had the snowman. We had the cross. 
and we had uh, a, ra a random reindeer. And so my, my mom would show us, and no matter what we did, the same mold came out. We put the, the tree in and the tree, and no matter what, the tree always formed the same pattern. So the cookies conformed to the pattern, you could say. And so Paul is essentially saying, as worshipers of the one true God, we're not to allow the values or the idols of this age to shape us, to put us into its mold. In fact, the word for world here, don't be conformed to the, to the world, is literally eon or age. It means the present evil age. If you're taking note, Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. The New Testament is not silent when it references the corruption of the world as we know it in this age. In fact, here's some notes that I uh, would love for you to jot down some verses. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We learn from James that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's an opposition to God. John tells us in 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, embraces the world, the system of the world, the eon, the age that we're in, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul told the Corinthians, the present form of this world, it's passing away. And yet John again reminds his listeners that our faith has overcome the world. So as believers, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, not of this age, but of the age to come. And as his followers, we're not to let the present form of this world dress us the way it dresses the rest of the world. John Murray says it this way, conformity to this age is to be wrapped up in the things that are temporal, to have all our thoughts oriented to that which is seen and that which is temporal. If all our calculations, plans, ambitions are determined by what falls within life here, well then by definition we are children of this age. We've been shaped by, conformed to this world. Now I told you to circle a second word, the word transformed, and this Greek word is where we get our word for metamorphosis. This is the word used of Jesus to describe his transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Mark 9. You, you remember that story where Jesus went with a few of his disciples up to the top of the mountain, and then his, his image, so to speak, his figure was transfigured before them, transformed. And those disciples got a tiny temporal glimpse of Jesus' glorious state in the age to come. In fact, for those disciples... Would you ever see Jesus the same after that moment of seeing him in all of his resplendent glory? For you, there would never be, you'd always see him with a glimpse of what was to come. You'd always be anticipating that future glory, even as his appearance was no longer as glorious as they got a glimpse of. So the Greek construction of this word, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you want to circle that phrase, be transformed, this is, the way the Greeks constructed, it is present passive imperative. You guys remember English growing up? So present tense means it's ongoing. So it's not just once. Hey, when you get saved, just be transformed. No, this is, this is present. It's ongoing. Not only that, but it's passive. It's happening to us. So we aren't the ones doing the transforming. We're, of course, to be sure, working with the Spirit of God, but this is happening to us. And it's imperative, meaning we are commanded to let this happen. So here's how we could rightly translate it. We could rightly translate this, continue to let yourselves be transformed. Isn't that great? Continue 
to let the Spirit of God transform you with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed from one image, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You see, when Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that is what happens when the Spirit of God and the Word of God have their rightful place in the believer's life. When our minds are dominated by the present age, by the fashion and form of this world, what happens is that begins to dominate our thinking. It begins to dominate our minds. And eventually we take the wrong shape. When we behold the glory of the Lord in the age to come, our minds are renewed and we look a lot more like Jesus. So Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then he says that. And so I want to look at this third section, our perspective on God's will. Notice the second half of verse 2. He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I would love for you to circle that phrase, will of God. When Paul says the will of God, he does not necessarily mean, is it God's will for me to go to college? Is it God's will for us to get married? That's not exactly what he means. What does he mean? He means the moral will of God as revealed in the Bible. And so one person said, to test and to discern what is the will of God, it means to understand and agree with what God wants of us with a view of then putting it into practice. So the greater, grander will of God, not the specific, narrow down view of, well, is it God's will that I eat this hamburger today? <clears throat> there is a holy instinct to discern the will of God. And he says that by testing, you may discern what is God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Note those three words. As we consider and discern what God's will is morally for our lives, he says that there's three things that define that. They are good. His will is good. It's acceptable and perfect. So good here. Good is referring to moral goodness. It's not just like, oh, that'd be good. That's a good thing. Because often when we live our lives, what we think is good, how we define good, it's not always good. A lot of times God's will includes suffering. And it's very hard for, hard for us if we're suffering with cancer to say, this is good. Right? Don't worry, be happy. I'm just going to put on a happy face. It's good that I have cancer. No, that's not realistic. So good here is referring not to this is enjoyable, but it's referring to moral goodness. What God desires for us is greater than what sin promises. Sin always destroys. So Adam and Eve, when they fell, one of the things that marked their fall was that they perceived that the fruit was good to eat. That was one of the problems that Adam perceived the fruit is good to eat. And it may have been delicious. And so for that reason, we would surmise that it was probably not a grapefruit because grapefruit is terrible. <clears throat> but as he looked at the tree, and it's good for food, it was not good. It may have tasted good, but it wasn't good because it brought disease, it brought despair, it brought destruction, it brought death for all mankind. So God's will, unlike sin, is ultimately morally good. It brings blessing, it brings restoration, it brings fullness. When we seek after and discern what God's will is, we can first of all say it is good, it is morally good. Secondly, it's acceptable. Now, some people believe that 
that he's repeating himself here when it says that it's acceptable or pleasing to God. It's actually the same word used in verse 1, describing the presentation of our bodies in spiritual worship. This is acceptable. So God's word is acceptable to God, and it's acceptable to us. We would walk in a manner that's pleasing to him. So it's kind of a circular uh, way of understanding that. We offer a life that's pleasing to him, and then we live a will that is also pleasing to him. Well, finally, notice that God's will is perfect. And this is speaking of moral perfection. And spoiler alert, we will never reach moral perfection in this life. I know some of you are seeking that perfectionism. We'll never reach that in this life. That's a grace. Uh, But it's still a direction we move in as we mature and as we're sanctified. So this does not as much mean, hey, you're going to figure out what God's will is as much as you're going to be actively participating in the will of God. Because he says, you will be able by testing to discern. In other words, this is something you're going to live out. You're going to live out a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for you. So do we understand the full train of thought here? Full train of thought, as we back up to last week in chapter 11, the the full picture is God is glorious. God is gracious. Our response, therefore, is to offer our very lives to God to bring him more glory, to bring him more worth. And in order to do so, for that to take place, we must put off the mindset of the present evil age. We must put on, clothe ourselves, other passages in the Bible speak of, we must put off the world, we must put on the mindset of the kingdom of heaven, the glorious age to come. And then we will rightly live out the will of God, which not only pleases him, but exalts him rightly. So the grace of God, you could say, the grace of God shapes us to live as true worshipers as true worshipers of Yahweh. Now, there's so much more we could go into. I want to make sure we have time to reflect and time to partake of communion this morning. Next week, we're going to move to the next concentric circle outward, but I encourage you this week to meditate in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and let the Spirit of God bring those points of application to you, those points of conviction, because for all of us, it's going to be something. It's going to be something uniquely different. Next week, we'll see in the covenant community how God's grace shapes us in the church and in our relationships within the body. But I want to make two points of application this morning, if you're taking note. I want to apply this small and powerful text to us. So the first one is this. Number one, the Bible, not our feelings, defines true worship. That needs an amen, and I appreciate someone's amen. The Bible, the Bible defines true worship. The text here in Romans 12 tells us this is your spiritual worship. You see, we're all worshipers, but we often settle, like we learned last week, for lesser glories. We often settle, and I don't think I said it in first service, but I did in second last week. We often settle for the street sign at Disney rather than the park itself. Can you imagine that? Camping out at the street sign. We've made it. Take a picture. Let's do a selfie in front of the Disney World sign. No, and people do do that, but they don't pack it up and go home after that. We settle for lesser glories. C.S. Lewis said it this way, a very famous quote. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
One of my favorite quotes, we are far too easily pleased. We've settled for lesser glories. But the Bible, not our feelings, defines true worship. Jot this verse down, Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus 10, the two oldest sons of Aaron were named Nadab and Abihu. And the scriptures tell us that they each took their censer and they, they put fire in it and they laid incense on it. And then the Bible says they offered unauthorized, or another translation says strange fire. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And he had not commanded them to do that. And the very next verse on the screen tells us fire came out from the Lord, consumed them, and they died. And here's what Moses says to Aaron, the father of Nadab and Abihu. He says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, my people, or you could say more particularly the priests, but those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. See, Nadab and Abihu, you could argue they had the right heart. They just wanted to offer fire before the Lord. They wanted to do some extra bit of worship. And they may, may have been completely convinced that how they were worshiping was right and honoring to God. However, they sought to worship God in a way he had not authorized. It was a way that was strange, or you could say man-centered. It was not what God had prescribed. And thus, though God will not ultimately be robbed of his glory, he says, among all the people I will be glorified, there is in a sense, a way that we as fallen idol worshipers can seek to, to rob God of his glory. If we do things instead of the glory and renown of God, when we have heresy or sinfulness or a lack of gospel faithfulness or pride, well, then God could be robbed of his glory. And whenever something competes with God's glory, we can expect judgment. So it isn't sincerity that defines true spiritual worship. Did you read that in verse one? I didn't, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, have the most sincere heart. This is true spiritual worship. He doesn't say that. And, and I, I love expression. I love fervency. I love zeal. The word passion has a lot of different views today. And as popular as those words are in modern Christian worship, these are not the marks of true spiritual worship. No, Paul says it's a life surrendered to God. It's a life consecrated for his purposes. So our worship must be described and prescribed from the scriptures. That's why, just to apply this, that's why when we come to gather with God's people, we look at what the Bible communicates to us about the corporate gathering. Why do we do some things in our gathering and not do other things? Well, Paul had much to say. It's not like the Bible doesn't know what to say about the church gathering. Paul had a lot to say. In various letters, he talked about correcting the misuse of spiritual gifts. He talked about the false worship of angels within a church. He talked about the lack of prayer or the proper qualifications for church leaders as he addressed various churches. And so when we open the Bible in the New Testament, we read Colossians and Ephesians that we should adore Christ, adorn him, that there should be the word of Christ dwelling us richly as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we should preach the word. We should have the public reading of scripture. In Acts, we read in chapter 2, there's fellowship and prayer and the breaking of bread. You could argue that's communion. In another passage, we see God's people being equipped for the work of ministry. We see older, uh, more mature believers teaching the younger. In fact, when we go back to the Psalms, we see among God's people, God being praised through the lifting of hands and bowing the knee and playing instruments, even the harp 
We don't have a harp, Micah, we can work on that, but you could argue that a piano is just a, a horizontal harp. And so we see people playing instruments and declaring his name and renown and communicating his truth from one generation to another. And on top of that, we see confession of sin. So the scriptures regulate what true worship looks like, whether it's in the corporate gathering here or it's in all of life. I love the 1689 London Baptist Confession where it says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped, notice this, according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, certainly not, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Let me add one more point on this. We look to and this is for all of us, we look to the scriptures, not to our upbringing. And and so some of us have been steeped in a church tradition. And I don't know what tradition it may be. It's going to be very different for all of us. But because of that tradition, we sometimes have a hard time viewing scripture rightly because we have to see it through the lens of our tradition and kind of muck through that before we see what the Bible actually says. And some would say, well, in my tradition, God's not in a box. And I'd say, no, he's not, but he's revealed himself in a book. And so evaluate your presuppositional biases on what worship is supposed to be, what the church gathering is supposed to be, what your life offered to God is supposed to be. We evaluate that not from our upbringing or our mind or the world, but from the scriptures. Now, secondly, when we say that we are not to be conformed to this world, I want to make this point. This is very important. Separation from this world does not mean isolation. When Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, I don't think it's obvious from the text, but I want to make a distinction that it's one thing to say, don't be conformed to this age, and it's quite another to say, don't involve yourself at all in the people of this world. Isolate completely. And so we're not to do this. We're not to move off to some monastery. Let's find some property in East Florida, and let's just... Let's just go and hide out and be segregated from the community of people that God has placed us among. That's not the idea. And some Christians would say the church is a castle. We're protected by a moat. Let's fill it with some alligators and let's arm the walls with cannons for defense. We are a guarded castle. Others would go way too far the other direction and say, well, the church is a mirror. And we take every cue from the world and the world creates it. We do a really bad job of spinning it off and trying to make a Christianized version of it. And so we just reflect back the values and the virtues of the world, and we hope people won't notice that they're a church. So just come on in. We didn't want to whisper and tell you that we're a church, so welcome to Community Center. I don't know what they do. But just come on in. Like, don't read your Bible. Don't, don't have any hint that we're a church. We'll just mirror the world. But see, Jesus doesn't describe the church as a castle or, or as a mirror. He describes it, his people, as we're a city on a hill. We're elevated from the world. We're, we're a place the world looks to for life, refuge, hope, and promise. And we can't be hidden. We're not to hide out from the world. No, we're already separate from this world. We're separate from the villagers. We are a city on a hill. It's attractive to the world, not because we are trying to be attractive to the world, but because we're a fragrance of Christ that the world has never discerned. They've never seen this. Lloyd-Jones says, by world, the New Testament means life as it is thought of, organized, and lived apart from God, without reckoning on God, without being governed and controlled by him. So of course, we don't want a church that's worldly. 
We don't want Christians who are worldly. Does that make sense? We want to be distinct from this world, not conform. And yet, because we're not joined with this world, we've been joined in the new Adam, the last Adam, the true and greater Adam. We've been joined and united with Christ, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, leave the world. He says, go into the world. And so the gospel must infiltrate every generation and every people group. And the only way this is possible is by being like Jesus. He was incarnational. He was in the flesh among people. So church, we don't fortify and fight, but neither do we mimic and mirror. We stand out from this world. We beckon and we shine. As we close this morning, we acknowledge in one sense, the work is complete. We have been justified. But in another sense, the work is ongoing. We are allowing the Spirit of God to transform us. We're being conformed, not to this world, but more and more into the image of Christ. We're being sanctified. And one day, we will be like Jesus in the sense that we'll be resurrected, we'll be sinless, we'll be reflecting his beauty and his glory as we behold our dear Lord face to face. And until that day, may we continue to offer our very bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, for this is our spiritual worship. Amen? Amen. Listen to this hymn, and then we'll close with a, a prayer of confession and an assurance of pardon for those who repent and trust Christ. Just bow your heads, listen to this hymn. What is the world to me? My Jesus is my treasure. My life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure. My joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Once more then I declare what is the world to me. You bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray a prayer of confession. And then we will um, sing together. So I want to take this time to confess our sins before the Lord privately, and then I'll close us in a time of prayer. God of grace, we confess that we have elevated the things of this world above you. We've made idols of possessions and people, and we have misused your name. We've permitted our lives to come first. We've not taken the time to worship you. We have taken our life for granted instead of offering it to you. We've been unfaithful in our covenant relationships. We've yearned for and sometimes taken that which is not ours. We've misrepresented others' intentions, and we've misrepresented you. Oh God, we pray forgive us for the many ways we fall short of your glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to learn to live not only before you, Coram Deo, but among your people, among the church, among the covenant community, walking in your ways. We pray that we would have forgiveness this morning through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask this in his name, the name above all names, the name alone which can save. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. 
You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.